Last week, we learned about the new identity. And so Paul reminded us, as he's reminding the Colossians, and through the Colossians, he reminds us that we need to recognize that we have died, that our old sense of who we are has died, has been buried in the ground as Jesus Christ has died. So in a spiritual sense, and then just as we have died to that old way of thinking, we're now living this new life, this new identity. And you get to have that meaning and that purpose. You know who you are because Jesus is the one who tells you who you are. And everybody else in this world is always scrambling. Who am I? They're trying to sort out their feelings, their emotions, and ask themselves questions like, what do I want to do? What do I want to be when I grow up? Which we talked about last week is all questions that only humans ask. And that's because humans are special that God has created for a specific purpose. And we can find it as we find Jesus. Well, tonight, Paul is having a sit down with the Colossians and telling them that there are certain things that they need to change about the way that they live. All of us hate sit-downs. We hate it when there's someone that says, we need to talk. I hate that. You hate that too. You get the text message, right? Especially if it's from your parents. Hopefully your parents don't text that to you, but sometimes they do. We have to talk when you get home. It's like, why, do, why would you say that? Why don't you just talk to me when we get home? Why do you have to like ruin my night? Because now all I can think about is there will be a talk later on this evening. So if that's you, just don't do it. Just talk to them when you see them. No need to like... Just make them, you know, their imagination is a scary thing. So this is what Paul says. He just goes straight to the point, doesn't say, I need to talk to you about this. He deals with it in his letter. But the cool thing about this is that Paul first, remember, spoke to them about their new identity before he spoke to them about the things that need to change. So he reminded them that any correction that Paul has for this church is for their benefit and for their growth and not because he likes to pick on them. And that's when you have the worst criticisms, right? It's it's because you feel like your parents or your friends think that you are wrong or there's something wrong about you, not the things that you do. And that's why they're picking on you and nitpicking every little thing that you do. But Paul is reminding them first, know you're loved and you have this new identity. And from that new identity, we then can put off certain things and we can change certain things about the way that we live. So he says this in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3. He says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Here's what he's saying. Paul is saying to the Colossians and through the Colossians saying to us, that because we have a new identity, we now must put away old habits and take up this new way of living. My brother had a favorite sweater when he was growing up, and it fit him when he was about five, but he continued to wear it up until he was about 14 or 15. And this sweater was a hand-me-down from my sister. It was a dog sweater. And 
this sweater was just so poorly made that it would unravel itself from the belly button outward. And so I guess if you're a teenage girl, it's like cool to have like, you know, show your belly button for like a 13-year-old man, probably not. I say man because, you know, in Jewish cultures, and I'm half Jewish, they called you a man when you're 13, you have bar mitzvah and stuff. So anyway, so he would walk around with this sweater that had like this dog, but you couldn't really even tell because the image was gone, and then this giant gaping hole on his belly. And walk around everywhere, I'm just like, what are you doing? Put that thing away. <laughs> the belly, not the sweater. The sweater's fine. No, I'm kidding. But what's interesting here is this, this is the sense that Paul uses about the old nature. In the Greek, what it's saying is you put off the old nature like an old pair of clothes and take on a new pair of pants or new shirt, put on new clothes, clothes of righteousness, clothes of this new nature. That's a sense of the Greek here when he talks about putting off certain things and putting on different things. So as Christians, as believers, we need to recognize there are certain habits that no longer fit us because we have become new people. I asked you a question in previous weeks. Has there been any change in your life since becoming a Christian? Are there, anything, are there any things that are noticeable about your life now that are different from when you were previously? And not just things like, I don't sin as much. And if I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably go out drinking, smoke, and do drugs and whatever. But are there certain things about your hope, the way that you view reality that has changed, and from that you start displaying good works? Well, it's important to recognize in order to take up this new life, we first must be willing to part with old ways. This is true of exercise. If you want to get that six-pack, you want to start looking good, beach season is shortly approaching us, and you start working out, you want to start working out, then here's the thing. You need to change your habits on how you eat, how you sleep, because all of that plays into how you look. And so if you want to change certain habits, say, you know what, I'm going to start going to the gym every single day. Guess what? There will be things that you have to cut out of your life in order to take up that new habit. That was always the problem with me whenever I would go to the regular gym before I started getting into rock climbing is I just could not get into the regimen of going to the gym because you have to get in your car, you drive over there, and you're just bored because you're lifting weights or you're on a treadmill. Everything about it was just so boring to me, and I could never make a good habit out of it. Besides the fact that you're always hoping that there are never any good-looking people, and there's never any people that are in shape at the gym, so you go when there's a senior hour so that no one judges you. And you can wear, like, your tank top. You're like, yep. I know I'm skinny, but that's fine because none of you are looking good anyway. So, <laughs> This is also true of health. If you want to live a healthy life, you need to part with certain things. Maybe you've been smoking cigarettes. In order to be healthy, you need to quit smoking cigarettes. It's logical, but many of us are holding on to old habits. And so for the uh, Corinthians, for the Colossian people, Paul specifically addresses two subjects. Now, there could be a whole array of subjects that he addresses, but it seems like this was something that they dealt with personally with their church. The first thing was purity inside, and the second thing was conduct outside. Purity within, inside of your heart, cleansing yourself, 
and then how you conduct yourself amongst other people. Those are the two subjects that he's going to deal with in this passage. So he says in verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. The ESV puts it this way. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So it's been said that old habits die hard. There are certain things that we do that we just can't quit doing. Maybe you're driving, you're one of those people that just picks their nose, and you just believe that no one else can see you. You just, like, don't have any windows in the car. And then people drive up next to you and are just staring at you, and you're looking like, oh, it's a bad habit. And you're trying to quit. But for whatever reason, you're obsessed with picking your nose. There are certain things that we do that carry, we carry with us all of our lives that we just can't seem to put to death. But clearly what we see in this passage is that the old nature has, past tense, died. It's gone. But now it's our job not to resurrect old habits. See, a lot of people get this confused. They believe that they are still supposed to attain victory over sin. When Jesus attained the victory for us, and so now our job is to not go back and resurrect that old way of living. So whenever we think, I want victory over this certain sin, or I keep on falling into anger, or selfishness, or jealousy, and you're trying to put to death those things because you believe that interpretation means that there's still something inside of you that's living, you're wrong. The fact is it's dead and we keep on visiting that grave and that tombstone believing it has power over us when it doesn't. So simply what we have to do in order to put those things to death is to recognize that they're dead and recognize that we have a new life that we are to embrace as believers. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, here's the thing. You often find yourself unable to stop thinking about yourself. You find it very hard to be selfless. And not to say that Christians are the most selfless people on the planet, because that's not always true. But whenever we do things, we're conscious of who wronged us. And that's why we have friends and enemies. That's why we've made that distinction between who is for us and who is against us, who's on our team and who's not on our team. And we leverage all the people that will affirm us, and we will deny all the people that reject us. You see this on social media. You see it in your social circles. You see it at school. You're constantly allying yourself with people that will approve of you and rejecting the people that will deny you. Well, in Christianity, Jesus died for his enemies and gives us that power to do the same for ours. To die to ourselves, to, to live this selfless life and to love others because we've been freed from the tyranny of self. So the first way that we see that Paul addresses that we need to put off certain habits is purity inside. And you see that in verses 5 through 7. Purity before God. He gives you this list. He says, put to, put, uh, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So these five different things. First off, fornication. And that word... And the Greek is pornea, from which the word we get, from uh, where we get the word pornography, which describes sexual intercourse outside of marriage. The second word is uncleanness, which has this broader definition than pornea. Passion, which is shameful sexual excess. Evil desire, which is lust. 
And covetousness, which it says right there, is idolatry, which many people don't even think about oftentimes. When you want something you don't have, you don't think about it as that thing owns you. And the reason why you sacrifice everything else to obtain that thing that you want is because you believe that it has power. And by obtaining that thing, you are more valuable. By obtaining those, those things that people will be jealous of you or want what you have. Now, maybe as I read that list of things, you think, I'm good. I don't think I have a problem with any of those things that we talked about, those, the list of five things. Well, I would be careful because maybe you're not having sex outside of marriage, but there is a broader term of uncleanness where we haven't been conducting ourselves in the purity that God desires us to conduct ourselves in. And as you let those things creep in, you could be like one of the many people who has fallen into sin. It's not like people just suddenly wake up and they're in bed with a person that's not their wife. There is a series of sins that lead up to the greater sin. That's why Jesus said that you may have not committed adultery, but I say to you, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery because all the stage is set for you to commit the sin that you abhor. This is why we see, unfortunately, leaders in the church, you see pastors that fall into sin, and you ask yourself, if they fell into sin, how in the world will I keep myself from sin? We have to remember that just because they seemed like they were clean on the outside doesn't mean they're clean on the inside. And it's possible that over many, many years, they let sin creep up in their life until it came out to the surface. That's why Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of him. It's in your heart that's deceitfully wicked. And we can fool everybody in this room, but God knows your heart. And it's important that you are accountable before the Lord. Remember David, when he, when he sinned with Bathsheba and he committed adultery with her, remember he killed her husband and slept with her and had a baby. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he was 40 years old in his 40s. This was not some young punk that had made a mistake in his youth, but he was middle age and he had failed. So yes, we might have some victory now, but we need to make sure that we never resurrect those old habits because Satan loves to seek whom he can devour. So this is where, as believers, everyone here, we need to examine our thought life and our beliefs. Our thought life and our beliefs. For many of us guys, we have to ask ourselves, have we started to objectify women? Well, how would you know that? How would you know if you're starting to view women as commodities, as objects, rather than human beings that Jesus Christ loved and died for and have a contribution to this planet and can pour into your life as well? Well, maybe in our conversation, the way that we talk about women may not be pleasing to the Lord, maybe with your friends, and as long as it's all of your guy friends, you don't feel convicted about it but you're talking about them as if they're an object to be won over rather than a woman, a child of God to be protected. So we gotta be careful that we're not talking about like, like this is just a game and we're just trying to win somebody's affections. There is a side of romantic, uh, romantic feelings where we might pursue a woman, but that pursuit should be to protect her, not to take advantage of anyone. So we gotta examine our thought life 
examine our beliefs. What do we believe about the world and what we do believe about each other? As Valentine's Day is approaching this Tuesday, how many of us feel like we need to have a Valentine? Don't raise your hand. So is one person just like, I, I do. I feel like that. <laughs> it's so silly, right? Like, as you're in high school, you feel like if you don't have a Valentine, you got to go find one. doesn't matter who, but you just, by the end of the day, by Tuesday night, 11.59 p.m., hopefully 11.11, because if it's 11.11, you can make a wish, and they can be your girlfriend forever. <laughs> but you need to make sure that you have a Valentine, or else, or else what? You're all talking to each other because you know it's like, it's true. Valentine's Day. But we feel the social pressure that if everyone else has a Valentine, we need to make sure that we have one as well. And we're buying into the system of the world. And when we have this, what does it lead to? It leads to covetousness, which is idolatry. You're jealous because everybody else is in a relationship. Everyone else is dating. And I'm the only one who isn't. Well, that, my friends, is covetousness, which the Bible says, not me, you can look at it yourself. Covetousness, when you covet what someone else has that you don't have, that is idolatry. You're taking the object and saying, I'm less of a person because I don't have what other people have. I'm not satisfied with what God has given me. But you got to be careful because this is how Samson fell into sin with Delilah. Because remember, there's nothing new under the sun. When Samson fell into sin with Delilah, she was constantly prodding him. What is the secret of your strength? And you think that by the third or fourth time that he'd figure it out, like she was trying to trap him, but he couldn't. And she would constantly appeal to him, like it says in Judges 15, how can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? Like this messed up girl saying, tell me the, the secret. Tell me the secret to your power. And how can you say that you love me if you're not going to be with me? But listen, ladies and gentlemen, that lie, that same lie is here today when people say you need to be more physical than you are now. And your, your spouse, your, well, not your spouse, your significant other, the person that you're dating, the person that you're talking to says if you're not willing to go this deep with me, then you can't really say that you love me. And we got to be careful that we're not buying into the system of the world because we died to those things. Sin is so severe, and we take it so lightly oftentimes because we think if everyone struggles, well, it can't really be that big of a deal. If everyone has problems with lust, if all the people are struggling with pornography, if all the people are struggling with, you know, being pure with their girlfriend or their boyfriend, then it really can't be a big deal. But listen what it says in verse 6. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Remember that people will die for these sins, these very sins that we oftentimes are apathetic to, are the very ones that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for, and people will be judged based on what they did. A perversion of what God has given us, a good thing called sex, but we've taken it outside of the marriage covenant and we started using it to our own benefit and to the advantage of others, taking advantage of others. So we've taken a good thing that God has given us and we've twisted its use and God is displeased when that happens and people are hurt in the process. 
But maybe you're thinking, well, in this day and age, how in the world is it possible to live in sexual purity? How is it possible to live a life where you are free from lust? It's not constantly on your mind. You're not constantly daydreaming about these things or your, your mind, your desires, and the things of your heart are not oriented in a way that's human-centered. How do, you, how do you stop that? Well, first of all, we got to recognize, because this is what happens, right? Like you think it's futile to even try to fight it, so you don't because everybody else is doing it anyway. No one else is having victory, so I don't need to have victory anyway. But the Bible not only assumes that purity is possible for the Christian, but that it is expected. First, that it's possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God will not give you what you cannot handle by his power. Every time that you're tempted, remember there's an opportunity to seek the Lord. Next time that you are tempted to look, tempted to engage, remember that God is on the other side saying, draw to me, not to the world. So it's possible and it's also expected. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 3 through 8 says this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness." Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So we hear, see here that what he's saying in contrast is the people of this world are always led by their emotions, led by their feelings, because that's all they have. But remember, we as Christians, as believers, can trust and commit ourselves to the Lord, believing he will give us the power to resist selfishness and to resist the desires that will only leave us empty in the end. Many of us don't believe that really sin is going to be that depressing, going to ruin our lives, going to hurt us. We don't believe it, and that's why we engage in it. Because if people in the world are always talking about how good it feels, if people in music and in our movies and everything that we're watching and seeing and taking in talks about it all the time, then obviously it can't be that bad. But here's the thing. Have you ever thought about this? The reason why everyone talks about it in their movies, and their songs, they glorify it is because if it's not glorified, if it's not all that, they have nothing because they stake their lives on it. So they have to talk about it. It's like when the person's insecure about his sport and it's like badminton and they've like, they're a professional badminton player, they have to talk it up, right? Like you're with them, that's all they talk about. Like, cool, I'd like, I don't think it's a cool sport. It's an awesome sport. It's the best sport ever. And they have to talk about it because... If it is as lame as what people say, I, like, I think it's a fun sport. If you play badminton, cool. But listen, if people demean it and everyone objectively demeans it, then they themselves feel like they've wasted their time. And that's why people are putting up this facade. The world is always alluring you, fooling you, and lying to you that it's going to be fulfilling. But truly, people that are in marriages and have stayed with those marriages are going to find the most fulfillment 
because you get to be intimate with one person who you can trust. But here's the thing. If you're intimate with everyone, how can you ever trust anyone? Because you never know if they're just going to leave you for somebody else. Somebody who's better, more good-looking, more attractive. There's no trust. There's no commitment there. But if you have one person that you're saying, till death do us part, I'm with you in the good times and the bad times. Imagine the intimacy there. Imagine the love there that at your worst, I still love you. Isn't it true? That's, that's what everyone wants. Everyone wants to be loved at their worst, to be looked at in your darkest moment as you're crying, as you're hurting, and someone says, I still love you. I'm here for you. No one wants to, like, when they're going through a hurting time, to be told by the person that they love, the person that they're intimate with, will you just get over it? Nobody wants to hear that. But that's what everyone is afraid of, that you're going to leave me if you think that I'm this ugly, if I'm this vulnerable, that you're going to reject me. But that's why the Bible says, have that intimacy in marriage where you know that you are loved and you can feel secure. So here are some practical principles in living this life of purity. And we're obviously going to be talking about this at the Vertical Identity Conference. Number one, don't delay in dying to sin. Don't delay in dying to sin. Because the longer that you walk in impurity, the harder it is to escape it and the more painful it will be when you stop. I'll never forget this analogy. It's kind of cheesy, but I remember my youth pastor would take an apple, and he talked about every time you give yourself away to somebody, it's like someone's taking a bite out of the apple. And it's not saying, like, you're too far gone. It's not saying, like, you should feel bad, like you're, you're not a full apple or something. But the principle is this, that you're letting people take a piece out of you and the longer that you're in sin, the harder it is to stop. This is why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Because we can get into our, a place where we're constantly hardening ourselves to the voice of the Lord, and we're numbing ourselves to the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because the more we feel the Holy Spirit telling us that's wrong, you shouldn't do that, the worse we feel. And so out of condemnation, we run away. So don't delay in dying to sin. Secondly, keep short accounts with sin. Keep short accounts with sin. Have an accountability partner, not somebody who calls you. That's great too, but have someone in your life. Listen very carefully. Every single one of you should have someone in your life that you can tell anything to. And hopefully that person is somebody older and wiser who can give you advice and not just listen to you. Having someone who can listen to you is great. Having someone who can give you godly wisdom and advice is better. I had a pastor friend who was talking, because we had to talk about like some pastors that fall into sin. It's just terrible, horrible. Like, how does this happen? He said to me, to, to remind me, he does not know of one pastor who's had a fantastic devotional life and is living a secret life of sin. Those two things don't happen. And not to say by reading your Bible, you won't sin, but to have this devotional life with the Lord where you're constantly keeping these short accounts means that God can speak into your life and convict you when you let those thoughts, when you let those things creep into your life, you can get rid of them. You can confess them. Number three, watch what you watch. Watch what you watch. Remember, David, before he would sin with Bathsheba, he was on a rooftop and he was watching Bathsheba from the rooftop. 
and he allowed that lust to creep into his life. It was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the threefold way of sin that led David down the wrong path. And it starts oftentimes with what you let into your eyes. So be careful. What do you watch on television? Because maybe what some people think is not a big deal is a big deal to you, and you should, as a believer, because your conscience is pricked, you should go and you should leave that situation. You should never ignore your conscience. If you feel convicted of anything, anything at all, I don't believe it's ever good to violate that conscience. So don't feel like you have to man up, you have to pay attention, uh, or whatever. That kind of leads us to number four, which is this. What's not stumbling for others may be stumbling for you. What's not stumbling for others may be stumbling for you. Some people, they can hold hands, not a problem. Some people, they might kiss each other on the cheek, whatever, as, you know, a couple. And for you, that's not okay. And you have to be resolved in your heart that it's okay that some standards that some people have can't apply to you. But we often look at everybody else and say, well, like, if they did it, then it's okay for me. And that's why we got to be careful what we put on social media because those things we put on social media might stumble others who have a more sensitive conscience. For some people, I know it sounds crazy, but maybe holding hands is a sin for you. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it might be. Only you know what's stumbling for you, and you have to be careful. And, and that word stumbling's a tricky word. You're like, what does that mean? I think you know what it means because the Holy Spirit convicts you and tells you that you're stumbling. So you don't have to be technical in that definition so you can escape it. Number five, sinful dating sets you up for a sinful marriage. Sinful dating sets you up for a sinful marriage. And here's the thing. Some of us think, well, we may have stumbled here or there while we were dating, but when we get married, everything will be fine. How do you know that? If you are not faithful in dating, how do you know if you'll be faithful in marriage? If you can set the precedent now when you're not committed to each other, how will you know when you are in this life-lasting relationship? It's not going to automatically change just because you've changed the nature of the relationship. Hear what uh, Gary Thomas says in his book called The Sacred Search. He says, if your dating relationship is sustained by sin, what will sustain your marriage? If your girlfriend acts selfishly as a girlfriend, wanting sex because she wants it and wants it now, regardless of whether you're married, why do you think she won't act selfishly as a wife? The same sin that moves your girlfriend to get too physical before marriage is a sin that will kill or perhaps maim sexual intimacy after marriage. So all these five practical tips can be summarized in this. Christians, we don't, we don't live based on how we feel. And because we don't live on base on how we feel, we can put those things aside and say, you know what, I don't live that life anymore. I'm taking off those old garments that don't fit me anymore. It's weird. I'm putting it aside. I'm going to live this new life. So secondly, not only purity inside, but secondly, we have conduct outside. This will go a little bit faster. So if you're like, wow, he's only halfway done. I'm not halfway done. I'm almost done. Conduct outside. And he says in verse 8, he has a, another list of six things. He names anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and lying. So anger in the Greek just meaning hatred, wrath being an outburst of anger, malice being evil intent, blasphemy being slander, not necessarily even blasphemy towards God, but blasphemy towards each other as we're made in the image of God, slandering one another in the church. Filthy language can just be obscene speech, 
and then lying, which could actually be taking place in the church, not just with outsiders. So at this point, you're probably looking at this list, and you're like, well, uh, everybody struggles with those things, so that's not that big of a deal. But the point is that he lists these things because they are a big deal. It's a big deal. If you have hatred inside of your heart, that is a huge deal. Hear how huge of a deal it is. First John chapter 4, verse 20 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The Bible would call you a liar if you have hate in your heart for a brother. And I'm not just talking about like, you have to use the word hate, like I definitely hate this person. But is there that root of bitterness you've allowed to creep inside of your heart? Because if it quacks like a duck, it looks like a duck, and it is, has feathers like a duck. I don't know what the third thing would be. Maybe it's a duck. It could be a duck. I was going to say feels like a duck, but <laughs> that would just be weird. <laughs> I've, never, I've never really pet a duck. Back to what I was saying. It's a big deal. Serious point, though. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus goes as far as to say this. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's how serious God takes hatred and unforgiveness. He says these two things. He says, if you hate somebody, you don't love God. You don't. And beyond that, he says, if you're not willing to forgive people, I won't forgive you. Like, that's the ultimatum. Imagine having this conversation with God. You're at, up in heaven, and you're talking to him about like, yeah, if you only knew what they did, man, this person is a terrible person. And he's like, sure, you can hate them if you want. I just, you can't say you love me because you don't. Well, you have to understand, like, what they did was, was really, really messed up. Like, you would understand. If you knew, like God, if God knew how much I was hurt, he wouldn't forgive them either. So like, no, you don't have to forgive them. I'm just not going to forgive you of your sins. Because realize every time when we're holding bitterness against somebody else, we have to recognize the sin we commit against God is worse than the sins that people commit against us. Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross taking upon the sins of the world. Not just your sin, not just your friend's sin, not just the sin of your enemy, but the sins of the entire world he was willing to die for. So in looking at this list, do we have occasional outbursts of anger? Or are you known for a quick temper? Are you a person that's known for constantly barraging people with angry bouts and people looking like, oh, here they go again, here she goes again, here he goes again, and they have to like leave the room because you are a person who's known for anger. And this is something that God says does not fit you. You're a believer. You're a Christ follower. Where is there a place for anger in the children of God? But then you have to ask yourself, well, well, how in the world do you deal with hatred in your heart? How do you deal with these outbursts of anger? What is the Bible's solution? Very simply, it's this. God is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. When we remember that God is the one who is making sure the universe functions in a way that is just, when he's the one who's in charge of reconciliation, you don't have to take matters into your own hands. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says this, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. 
For the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Here's what he's saying. He says, God is the one who will take vengeance for you. If there are people that have really wronged you, he's going to be the one who repays. And you have to, by faith, trust that he's going to do it. And what's your job? What do you do in response? Well, if God is the one who's going to fully repay each and every sinner for the wrongs that they have done, if they don't receive him, what do you do? You don't contribute to the process. You don't kick the man when he's down. You don't add. You don't fulfill God's wrath and and do what he wants to do. Like, God's going to do it. So what's your job? Your job is to love. If if the enemy's hungry, if we had an enemy in our sights and he was like dying of starvation, most of us would be like, ha, I'm not sharing my food with that person. But God says, but since I'm taking care of it, you get to just love. You get to go out and share your food. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. And it's going to confuse him. Imagine if you did that because people that hate you, people that don't like you, and you start being nice to them. I want to bake, some, bake them some cookies and bring it into school and see what they do. And just like, they'll probably throw it out because they'll think they're poisoned or something. But God wants you to show love. Because recognize this. Not only will he repay for the people that have wronged you, but he also paid with his own blood by dying on the cross. He took the vengeance upon himself. He suffered the affliction. He was the one who took the wrong. But the key is not to let evil conquer us by making us conform to the way that it pays back. The world always says, if someone punches you, you punch them back. If people hurt you, you got to defend yourself. But in Christianity, we can lay down our swords, lay down our arms, and say, God will take care of it, and our job is to love and embrace. So hatred, violence, and slander has no place in the life of a Christian. Maybe you don't hate Maybe you're not angry, but maybe you blaspheme other believers, say nasty things about them, but guess what? You're only helping the devil out because what the devil would love to do is accuse other believers of wrong. The devil would love that. If you point, like, there might be legitimate wrong that other believers have done to you. Don't you think the enemy would love that to come to the surface? But love covers a multitude of sins. That's what love does. Yes, people have been mean to you. Yes, people have hurt you. But guess what? God wants you to cover the multitude of sins by your love that he's given you by his power. Because it's not fitting for the believer to wear these old clothes and have these old habits. We, we, we used to do that. Everyone in the world used to do that. Gossip, slander, that's, every, what's, that's what you expect. And even in the workplace or at school, you, when you're with people that aren't Christians, sometimes you get roped into that. As they gossip, you feel the need to gossip too. As they complain about their families, you feel the need to complain about your family too, but that does not fit anymore for you. If hatred is like a credit card, the new life is like, it only takes cash only. It's just not going to fit. You take your credit card, you stick it in the vending machine, it doesn't work. Because you're a new life. And because of that, you've cast off those old habits. And you might be thinking, well, well, that's just not who I am though. I'm just not that kind of person. I feel like I have to fight back. I feel like I have to defend myself. That's how I've always been. That's how I've grown up. And that's how I am now. Well, here's the good news. It's not about you. It's really not. I'm glad that you think that's not how you, who you are. But that's the whole point. It's not about you. It's about being 
like Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says this. You're putting on the new man. So cast off certain things, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. This is Jesus. We're becoming like Jesus. And this new image that we're putting on is, in fact, the one that is in the image of Christ. So you're not thinking about how do I, as Alan Kahn, love other people. You're thinking, how does Jesus love other people and allow him to use me in that way? The last verse says this. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So Christ unifies all these people, and here's the thing, and this is where it applies to you specifically this evening. All of us make distinctions that Jesus himself doesn't see. Here we have different people saying there's Greeks and there's Jews. There's circumcised and uncircumcised. There's barbarians, Scythians. Scythians were a people group that were, according to the ESV Study Bible, they're along the northern coast of the Black Sea. These were a violent, uneducated group that people said, like, were the scum of the earth. They despised them. They didn't like them. And Jesus says, I don't see the distinction. Yep, I'm in all those people. If they've called upon my name, I am their Lord. I am their Savior. They're one of, they're one of the body of Christ. That's it. You don't make a distinction between the left arm and the right arm in the body. They're all connected to the same head. And likewise, for us, we need to get rid of the distinctions that we have. We have to stop seeing people in black or white. We have to stop seeing people as homeschooled, as public schooled, as Christian schooled. Jesus himself doesn't make those, distinct, those, those distinctions. So because of that, it's very important that we don't build up these walls. Like, some of us come in and are like, oh, well, it's so clicky here. Those people don't want to talk to me. Or they're in that group. Or they're in this group. And Jesus, I just imagine Jesus walking in and be like, what groups? I see one big group. What are you talking about? This is my family. And if Jesus would want his family to get along, then it should be our job to step out of our cliques, out of our boundaries, and to go to a different group and say, I love you, and we're all one family, and we're in this together. And stop adding to the problem by seeing those different distinctions. But here's the thing, and this is really, really important. When he talks about that Christ is all and in all, he's not saying those distinctions don't exist. He's not saying that you're really not a Greek person, you're really not a Jewish person anymore. Just like it says in other passages of the Bible, neither male nor female, doesn't mean that you're not a man anymore and not a female anymore. That'd be weird. So you still have those functions, but here's the thing. Each person has equal access to God, but this is really important. If you miss everything else from the message, this is what you got to get. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, when we talk about the racial injustice, when we talk about people in public school that feel oppressed, if we talk about gay rights movement, we talk about whatever, minority groups, here's the thing. All people have equal access to God, but God does not give each person equal emphasis. That is really important. I'll say it again. Each person has equal access to God, but not all people have equal emphasis. If you look in the Bible, if you look through the scriptures, this is what happens. It's the people that are marginalized that Jesus spends the most time with in scripture. He goes to the poor. He goes to the oppressed. He goes to the rejects. He goes to the people that no one else wants to be around. He's, he was a person that they would, they would actually accuse of being a friend of sinners, being a drunkard. So for us, it's not enough 
not enough to say that I, as a human being, as an American citizen, as a person who's privileged or whatever, I don't see those distinctions and whatever. They don't exist. But it's our responsibility to find out who is oppressed, who is rejected, and go seek them out and be Jesus to those people to equalize the playing field. So it's not enough to just say, like, well, I'm ignorant of the problem and whatever, so I'm just here and cool, I don't see it anymore. But recognize there are people hurting in this group. There are people hurting outside of this group. If it's the case that we start up a Syrian refugee ministry, which is something I'm looking into, that is our job as believers to go be the church of those people who are, at this time, at this time in history and place in New Jersey, will be oppressed, will be rejected, will be people that people don't want to be associated with, and we get to go and shine the light of Christ to those people. So how does this apply for you? Maybe you don't know a refugee at school. Maybe you don't know a person that might fit that category, but you do know a person that you want to associate with here in this youth group, and you, go, you get to go be Jesus to that person. Because when Jesus calls us to be a new creation, have the new identity, he calls us to be a person that's willing to go out and lay down those old habits and take up new habits, one of which is loving one another. Let's pray.